Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 91, The Gathering White Storm. By the end of 1918, the white leaders were looking forward to a successful campaign in the coming year. Armies had been assembled to move in on the Bolsheviks from all directions, especially from the South and East. World War I had ended, and theoretically their Entente allies would be upping their support to regain the country. Already, foreign troops had landed in Murmansk and Archangel in the north, and were operating in Siberia and the Far East. Small detachments of British soldiers were aiding anti-Bolshevik factions in the Southeast Caucasus set along the Persian border with Central Asia, and more help from outside could be expected later. For their part, the Bolsheviks looked warily towards the coming year. The Red Army had been bolstered, but was facing battles all over the country, and was additionally facing societal collapse due to famine and a probably ill-advised reign of terror on the part of the Cheka, both big topics that I will be doubling back around to once I finish covering the fighting during 1919. Lenin's big hope, which proved to be correct, was that the Entente were too exhausted to give meaningful help. The British and French were already sending representatives to Romania in late October 1918 to coordinate with Southern Whites and open up yet another Entente front. This new front materialized when the French landed in Odessa on December 18, 1918, in Sevastopol on December 26th, and several smaller ports throughout January 1919. While the French were the initial force with some 15,000 troops in the area, it would actually be Greece that would send even more into southern Ukraine, as Prime Minister Venizelos figured that helping their buddies out in Russia would net them some support in the future peace conference for Greek claims elsewhere. This was all part of a larger white plan to make the Northern Black Sea a base of operations for a full Entente army. The idea was to seize southern Ukraine, link up with Denikin's volunteer army, which, once it completed taking the Northern Caucasus, would swing northwards, as well as with the Don Cossacks, and from there, march through eastern Ukraine on the way to Moscow. The problem was, though, that as I mentioned a moment ago, Lenin was right, and the Entente were not about to launch the full might of their armies into Russia. Instead, settling for hanging around the peripheries of southern Ukraine and the Caucasus, uh, the latter of which saw British troops adding Georgia to the list of areas they were prowling around in. Uh, moreover, discussions over a combined strategy in Russia between the Entente and the Whites broke down in December 1918, as Western leaders started getting cold feet which was all very predictable, as their peoples were at their wits' end with expeditions and their troops were borderline mutinous at the idea of a new deployment now that World War I was over. So there was instead a weird half-commitment that saw Entente troops deployed in sizable numbers all over Russia in exactly the places where they wouldn't make a difference, which wound up not doing a lot to help the Whites and successfully poisoned relations with the Reds. Communist paranoia over Western invasion stems from this early era, when even though the interventions weren't terribly well thought out, they were still very real. The increased presence of the Entente in the south of Russia also encouraged Denikin to shift his focus towards actually moving on Moscow. While he openly courted Western help, he was suspicious of their intentions and feared that they would support independent states in Ukraine, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. To that end, he had to wrap up the fight for southern Russia. 
The Red Army in the region was holding on by a thread, already having been pushed back by Dunekin in the previous summer to a handful of bases in the northeastern Caucasus Mountains. Their supply lines further north were also heavily disrupted by the Don Cossacks' attack on Tsaritsyn, and while Red troops had cleared the Astrakhan area of local Cossacks several times throughout 1918, this was the only reliable route south for them, and it depended on pack animals, as there wasn't a railway connection along the Caspian Sea. As a consequence, when Denikin sent his most capable subordinate, General Rongel, to finish the Reds in the south off, the masses of troops facing the volunteer army were starving, ill-clothed for the winter, and lacking in ammunition. Typhus was also a huge problem, owing again to the, both the cold and lack of nutrition. The winter campaign was disastrous for the Red Army, and their forces simply fell apart. Out of the 150,000 troops in the area to start, 25,000 were killed, over 30,000 taken prisoner, and thousands more were dead from disease or exposure. The rest simply scattered. Some for the mountains, those who were lucky enough to have access to a horse made for the more distant but safer steps around Astrakhan. The cities of the Northeast Caucasus fell, with even the British getting in on the action, sending a detachment of troops north from Baku all the way to Grozny, which was turned over to the volunteers on February 8, 1919. White trains were laden down with artillery and machine guns captured from the Reds. The victories in the Caucasus had occurred just in time for Denikin, because the northern section of his front was going to hell and needed immediate reinforcing. The general was suffering from a worsening relationship with the Don and Kuban Cossacks. Neither group had ever submitted themselves to his full control, although he had the most leverage over the Kuban host, as I've discussed in the past. The Don host, however, was growing ever more distant, as he couldn't bring himself to guarantee their own separate government in the future. The legislative group of the Don Cossacks, the Krug, went so far as codifying rules for how hard the Cossack troops should commit to fighting on behalf of the Whites, and how closely they should work together in February 1919. These restrictions led the Don leader, Adaman Krasnov, to resign and be replaced with General Bogoyevsky. This was all very short-sighted, as both the Cossacks and Whites were locked in battle with the Red Army in the Donbass mining region in eastern Ukraine from February to March. The Whites succeeded in keeping their hold on that valuable slice of Ukraine, but when the dust had cleared, the Cossack troops were broken and were forced to flee the area, suffering their second major defeat since the Siege of Tsaritsyn. But while the most valuable part of eastern Ukraine was held by the Whites and the southern ports by the Entente, the rest of Ukraine was wide open. The collapse of the Central Powers meant that the flimsy nationalist government in Kiev, which was mainly a front for local authorities and warlords who didn't care to answer to the Reds or the Whites, was suddenly open to attack. The Reds had already been testing the defenses of northeastern Ukraine back in September 1918, when Germany was gripped in crisis as its armies in the West had been forced into an unending retreat. The final German withdrawal gave a green light to a full Red Army invasion. Simultaneous to the late 1918 invasions of the Baltics, Red troops poured into Ukraine and Belarusia. Just like in the Baltics, these troops were not the best of the best the Reds could offer by any means, but they were more than enough to roll over whatever the Kiev government could put up to resist them. The Ukrainians, or at least what troops present themselves, took one look at the numerical odds and opted to hightail it west. Kharkov fell on January 3rd, Kiev on February 5th. The Ukrainian army put up a last stand on the old western frontier, but was broken by late April 1919. 
its troops fled into what had been Austrian Galicia, which today is western Ukraine. They found some refuge and allies in the area, but were then beset by Pilsudski and his Polish army as they moved to take the old Austrian areas for themselves. The Ukrainians, now beset from the west, would not pose a further challenge to the Reds. The Whites were not in a good position to contest the Bolsheviks in Ukraine as the Entente had blocked them from moving into that region from the bases that they had seized on the Black Sea coast. This was due to the Entente not wanting to play favorites between the Ukrainian nationalists and the Whites. Once again, their half-measures played directly into the hands of the Red Army. Because the Ukrainians had fallen apart and the White forces in the region were relatively insignificant, the Red Army in Ukraine felt bold enough to strike at the French Greek landings in Ukraine directly. A unit of Entente forces had set themselves up in the city of Kherson, between Odessa and the Crimea, which became the first Red target in early March. The siege was brief, and after losing some 400 men, the demoralized French commander ordered an evacuation by sea to Odessa. This disaster, although minor, was devastating to the already demoralized Entente troops, and sailors on a French ship mutinied over their continued deployment. The French commanders resolved to concentrate on turning Odessa into a fortress, and from late March onwards focused on digging into the city. What they were thinking long-term, I have no idea, as while Odessa was certainly a valuable piece of real estate, the French and Greeks couldn't be expected to simply hunker down there forever, and their own lack of success didn't seem to stop them from dealing with Denikin in a high-handed manner either. On April 4, 1919, the French command in Ukraine advised Denikin that they would be the ones to manage the war effort in that region and expected Denikin to subordinate himself to them when operating in zones they considered their own. This slap in the face proved to be pointless, as on the same day, the civilian government in Paris decided to shut down the whole thing and bring their troops home. The French commanders didn't need to be told twice, and in four days, almost the whole of the Entente presence was removed from Odessa. All that digging in had proven to be for nothing. It was a flabbergasting turnaround that sent white morale plummeting at how quickly and casually they had been abandoned. It also caused a panic among the civilian population who had come to Odessa as a haven from the Bolsheviks. The French and Greeks were moving out so fast that the civilians had no time to make arrangements, and non-military boats were booked solid with people wanting to leave. There were still thousands more who couldn't secure transport, and the docks were lined with the desperate trying to convince the French to take them along with them. The white troops in Odessa beat a hasty retreat to Romania, where they were quickly disarmed. White troops north of the Crimea tried to set up a fallback line on the thin strip of land connecting the Crimea to Ukraine, but the Red Army tossed them aside and they were forced to retreat to Feodosia in the southeast, where they were only saved when Entente warships appeared to give them backup. The situation in Sevastopol was even more confused. The French commander there declared that the city would be held, and this declaration seemed genuine, as 4,000 French African colonial troops arrived between April 12th and 14th. However, while those troops were arriving, preparations were already underway to leave, this time taking as many civilians with them as possible. On the 16th, a full evacuation was carried out, once again devastating white morale. This time it was even worse, though, as Sevastopol also played host to the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which the French took the precaution of scuttling on behalf of the whites to make sure the ships didn't fall into red hands. 
The Entente adventure in Ukraine had lasted four months, committed 70,000 foreign troops, caused notable suffering as the foreigners took for the locals, just as the Reds and Whites did, and accomplished less than nothing. Instead of offering the Whites a helping hand, they disorganized any potential defense of the region and opened it to the Red Army. And where the Whites dreamed of a coalition coming to save them, they got an illusion that only built their hopes up. More of the same news came on May 10th when the British announced they were winding down their presence in the Southern Caucasus. Although this didn't matter quite as much as the Red Army had long since been cleared from Denikin's southern flank. Still, it removed the possibility of significant British aid coming from that direction. The British had asked Italy to take over in the region, but the Italians, just starting to enter the Red Two Years that would dominate its politics up to the March on Rome, laughed off the suggestion. Positive news for the Whites came on May 9th, when a Red force marched out from Tsaritsyn to seize Rostov. The Red troops were able to threaten the area where the Manich and Don rivers met, but Vrongel's forces, having arrived back north, were able to repulse them with a surprise cavalry charge. By this time, too, Kolchak's forces in Siberia were pushing westwards, and Denikin figured that summer was now or never. He planned for a three-pronged attack, with Vrongel's renamed Army of the Caucasus advancing over the hard, open steppe towards Tsaritsyn, who Vrongel's left would be General Sidorin's newer Army of the Dawn, which would march towards Voronezh, and finally General Maimaevsky's volunteer army, which would march first on Kharkov and then Moscow. The atmosphere was electric, as it seemed the final battles would finally be fought and done with for the men who had been soldiering since 1914. They were a tired bunch and ready to go back home once they had sorted the nation out. Denikin had even agreed to subordinate himself politically to Kolchak in Siberia, so it seemed all that was left for the Whites was to link up and put away the Reds. On the other fronts, there was the same expectation. The Red Army in the Baltic was seemingly triumphant, but its gains proved to be short-lived. The German Free Corps in Latvia became active, and while they proved to be a disruptive presence that were eventually expelled, as I covered in episode 37, they did manage to force the Red Army back from that area, defeating even the Latvian riflemen deployed on their home turf. The Red presence in Lithuania and Belarusia was never strong, and the resurgent Polish nation was soon moving into both areas, clearing them of Bolshevik troops. This highlighted the problem with the Red strategy of opportunistically trying to snap up every territory surrendered at Brest-Litovsk. The area that had been opened up with the collapse of the Germans was simply too huge, and the troops had to fan out across wide areas where a focused and determined enemy could easily push them back. It also meant that critical numbers of soldiers were thrown into the western fray just before the eastern and southern fronts started to heat up again. The diffusion of red troops was repeated in Estonia, as after losing momentum trying to take the last segments of that tiny nation, the Red Army started to be pushed back in winter 1919. Fighting alongside the Estonians was still the White Northern Corps, which proved to be an awkward team-up as the Estonians formally declared independence on February 24, 1919, and the Whites still wanted to keep all the Baltics in Russia. But this detachment of Whites wasn't numerous enough to do anything about it and had enough good sense to keep the partnership going, as by this time, the Estonians had an army of 20,000 men and the Whites in the area only 4,500. By the spring of 1919, the Red Army had been forced from Estonia and the two allies turned defending off fresh Bolshevik attacks. The cooperation proved valuable to the Whites, as when May came around, the Estonians would help them take the fight to properly Russian soil, as the Red Army had exhausted itself. 
Starting on May 13th, an advance was commenced south of Lake Pipus on the borderlands between the two countries that saw the city of Skov be retaken by the Northern Corps, now operating separately from the Estonians as of May 25th. By early June, they were advancing on the town of Luga, which sat between Skov and Petrograd. Suddenly, the birthplace of the revolution was in real trouble. Command over the whites in this region had been assumed by General Nikolai Yudinich, who had formed a government of northwestern Russia and who on June 5th was recognized as the leader of Russian forces in the area by Admiral Kolchak. He was also notable for having been the commander of the Army of the Caucasus during World War I and was one of the more successful Russian commanders in those days. The Northern Corps also had its title upgraded to the Northwestern Army as its numbers had been increased to some 10,000 men after its moderate successes. That success, though, was undermined by the incompetence of the white leaders in actually administering their newly won territories. The area of Russia they were operating in was both forested and swampy and not a very productive food-growing region. Famine quickly swept the contested area that ran roughly north and south between Estonia, Latvia, and Petrograd. Fish heads and grass became key ingredients in local cooking as food stores were snapped up by the whites. But even their army wasn't well off, and tensions soon rose with the Estonians, who declined to sell Russian troops additional food. It probably also didn't help that a terror campaign was launched among the quote-unquote liberated population, with the usual burning of villages and executing suspected Bolsheviks. With dwindling resources and only reluctantly supported now by the Estonians, the Northwestern Army was halted outside Luga in early June and steadily forced back eventually having to abandon Skov again on August 28th. They weren't completely forced out of Russia, and Yudnich, to his credit, not only kept his force together, but managed to grab control of scattered white detachments from all over the Baltics, so his numbers actually increased. That being said, the summer offensive was a big disappointment, as the Northwestern Army had failed to make any significant headway, and its administrative staff proved ill-equipped to support them as they occupied larger areas. Their saving grace was the presence of the Estonians, who, again, were kind of giving them the side-eyes as they helped, and also the fact that the Red Army couldn't send reinforcements to follow up their successes. And a big reason the Reds couldn't spare them in, besides the fact that they dispersed so many chasing after the western provinces once Germany was out of the picture, was because the Eastern Front, so recently secured from the Kamuch forces, was on fire once again. The Red Army all along the East had been fighting since mid-1918, and by the end of the year, were totally exhausted. It didn't help that by December, the traditional Russian winter had settled in, and though Red troops had reached the Ural Mountains by then, they were at the end of their rope. An aggressive white counterattack in the northern sector by the Siberian Army collapsed the weakened Bolshevik forces and pushed all the way to Perm in December 1918, seizing the, that important industrial city. 20,000 men were captured and, almost as vitally, if not more so, were 5,000 railway cars and 1,000 machine guns. Both Felix Zhezhinsky and Stalin were dispatched to figure out just what the hell was going on in the region, and they reported back the dire condition the troops were in. The concerns were noted, but the Red Army's planned advance further south was ordered forward regardless. In January 1919, the Cossack capitals of Yurlisk and Orenburg were taken, the latter being important because it was the railway conduit for further south into Central Asia. It seemed that the loss of Perm could be just an isolated setback. 
It wasn't an isolated setback, though, and the same exhaustion that plagued the Red Forces in the north was afflicting them further south as well. The reason why they were able to achieve those local successes was the fact that the western and Siberian armies under Kolchak were not quite ready to commit to a full-scale attack. This would change in very late winter and early spring, when Kolchak committed his main forces to a counteroffensive. The Ufa offensive, as it was known, commenced on March 4, 1919, and was commanded by General Konzin. His western army of some 42,000 men moved from Chelyabinsk in roughly a straight line westward towards Samara, crossing the Snowdover Plains in sledges and on skis. The Red Army, which had exhausted itself covering a huge area east of the Volga and being far from its supply lines, simply fell apart, much as it had in the past. Now, I'm a little disappointed that so many battles in this series are such non-starters, as the stronger, well-rested side was usually able to instantly shatter its opposition, but that's what happened, and there's only so much I can dress up, so we'll just keep moving along here. Ufa fell on March 14th, and by the end of April, the Whites were 75 miles from Samara and the Volga River. Its flank was covered by the southern army of 25,000 men, and then south of that were the 20,000-strong Orenburg Cossacks, who were looking to take their hometown back. They wouldn't succeed, as once again Cossacks proved inadequate for taking urban areas. But they did bypass Orenburg in favor of marching almost to the Volga around Saratov, so they still made advances. The Siberian army up in the northern sector, consisting now of 45,000 men under one General Gajda, advanced from Perm towards Vyatka, modern-day Kirov. Little aside, Gajda is a fun one. He was an ethnic Czech and a member of the Legion, but had come about joining it in an unorthodox manner. He had been in the Austro-Hungarian army at the start of World War I, but had been taken prisoner by the Army of Montenegro, where he switched sides and joined with them, claiming to be a physician. As Montenegro was overrun, he fled south and joined up with a unit of Serbs, who themselves eventually wound up in Russia. That unit was destroyed on the Eastern Front, and he was shuffled off into the developing Czech Legion as a captain. He was genuinely brave on the battlefield against the Germans and rose through the ranks, coming to command the detachment of Czechs that seized Irkutsk and the surrounding area in 1918. He was far more enthusiastic than his countrymen in fighting Russia's civil war and wound up switching over to the army of Siberia, which benefited from his aggressive style as he led the attack on Perm. His independent streak would not endear him to Kolchak, and while the admiral was initially impressed with the Czechs' results, they would come to butt heads in the summer of 1919. Overall, the forces deployed by Kolchak were impressive ones, although there was a critical problem that he was aware of but had to live with. Kolchak's regime was a new one, and the armies deployed were not terribly capable of working together. The armies themselves came from the scattered communities of the East, and their officers were usually poorly trained and or inexperienced. Kolchak had wanted to launch his attack in the summer, which would have given more time for his troops to train away those deficiencies, but the Entente were anxious on a return on their investment. They had backed his government to knock off the Bolsheviks, not sit around Siberia absorbing money and equipment from the West. And while it had been launched earlier than originally envisioned, the offensive was a massive success, and practically the whole of the Red Army's Eastern Front vanished with barely a fight. This was due both to the physical state of the army and because practically the whole of the occupied areas had turned against them, turning the countryside into hostile ground and very welcoming towards the Whites. This was due to the Red Terror committed by the Bolsheviks, as well as their war communism policies, 
which yes, are both things I'm going to finally get around to covering in about two weeks' time as I discuss life during the Civil War. The spring victories for the Whites were stunning, and the Entente recognition came pouring in as it looked like their support of Kolchak was going to pay off big time. But Kolchak's successes were due to the Reds being caught away from their bases, and now the Whites were far from theirs as well, which forced them to live off the land just as the Red Army had done and turned the populace against them too. It was now time for momentum to shift once again in favor of the Bolsheviks. Over March and April, they had come to grips with the danger presented to them and shifted troops from the west to the Volga. The Bolsheviks also turned out another massive recruitment drive in the area, and while only a trickle of fresh bodies were gathered this time, maybe some 15,000, it proved to be enough. Close supplies and fresh reinforcements meant that the new Red commander in the area, Mikhail Fruns, soon to be one of the great Bolshevik heroes of the Civil War, was able to halt the Whites dead in their tracks. It would be on April 28, 1919, that he would launch the last of the Seesaw Offensives, and the next great battle between Kolchak and the Red Army would be the decisive one from which there would be no return. Which is exactly where I'll pick up again next week, as we cover how it all went wrong for the White Forces. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.